Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Friday the 13th, Part 2, starring Amy Steele, John Fury, Adrian King, and Betsy Palmer. Written by Ron Kurz and directed by Steve Miner. Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. It's time to start a new film review cast now for the month of October. And we did this last year with the first entries in the major franchises. So now let's continue on. We'll just call this one the Terrible Twos for that matter. And up first, Friday the 13th, Part 2 from 1981. Uh, we just finished watching it in the other room, Matt and I. We, I think we had a good time watching it. And we, were, we talked about a lot of different things and a lot of topics came up and the ending. Maybe we'll have a lot to say about that coming up here. Yes. But we got a new bottle. This is going to be the Weller Special Reserve. This is the green label. Uh, do you want to go ahead and give us a pour there? Yeah, you did some research on this this week. Why don't you fill them in sure. me in while I pour us? Yeah, definitely. So this one's interesting. This is a weeded uh, bourbon. So bottle that 90 proof, you know, it substitutes uh, wheat for rye grain. So we should be tasting, you know, uh, presences of caramel, honey, or butterscotch, and have a nice smooth finish with this one. So, mm. All right. so cheers! Cheers! That is a sweet bourbon. It sure is. Wow. Yes. It, normally, when we go through those lists and it's this hint and that hint, I can't get any of it. But that is really, really honey tasting. A little more floral, a little, yeah, I definitely taste um, some honey notes in there. That's terrific. That is a great bourbon, Jesse. And, and smooth. I'm, I'm, I'm always a fan of, of very smooth bourbon pours. Mm. But interesting, so just while we're kind of enjoying that little taste there, we had some great responses to some of our questions. Remember we had talked about that, that would you rather of the 70s or the field? Oh, yeah. And uh, the movie Surgeon... Uh, on Instagram says he choose the seventies for sure. And I love this name. Evil liver 72 <laughs> picks the seventies as well. It's, it's that was such a hard question. And then, uh, for use of best use of color in film, uh, thundering Savity chose Suspiria as you would, but then Steve, Stever, Hey, now was going to choose that, but instead had to go with Blade Runner 2049. Great. And then also, and we talked about it this week too, Batman forever no, Joel Schumacher's really great with his colors, and I told you we need to kind of cover this movie because there's there's a lot to talk about. Strange that's come up twice in the last four days. Twice in the last four days, so excellent. Thank you uh, to, to those people chiming in there. We love the feedback. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and our email, ricesmileproductions at gmail.com. So you ready to, ready to get this flight started? I'm ready. All right, let's do it. All right, Friday the 13th Part 2 set one year, not set one year, but made one year after the 1980 original. This is our first good look at Jason Voorhees as a as an antagonist. Not yet fully the Jason Voorhees we all know and love. He's got a, a bit of a ways to go. So in this film, he's wearing almost like a potato sack on his head with one little eye hole. 
very reminiscent of uh, the town that dreaded sundown, the kind of sack face killer. So right. this is an interesting mask, but in this genre, the killer usually wears some type of mask or something to hide their identity because these movies are really whodunits at the end of the day. You're right. So my question to you is, let's kind of list our top three favorite slasher antagonist masks. Let's start with number three. Number three for me came up again, actually. This might be third week in a row I've mentioned this film. Okay. It's The Mask of Satan from Black Sunday. Oh, nice. Not sure that's a 100% slasher. It's more witchy, but I'm going to play a little fast and loose with some of the rules we've set here. Sure. Uh, If you could take an Iron Maiden, the torture device... And use it as a mask for a horror concept. There you have this. Excellent. Again, to everyone out there, if you haven't seen this film, you should go see Black Sunday. Mm-hmm. It's it's not landmark in 2020, but I do think it's it's noteworthy and certainly referenced a lot. And go meet Barbara Steele mm-hmm. and Mario I, Bava. And Mario Bava. Yeah, no, excellent. I, I love it. Maybe we will bring up Bava again uh, in this episode. Yeah, because uh, one of the death scenes is actually inspired, I want to say, from one of his films. But we'll we'll get to that. What's your number three? Number three for me, I'm gonna go with the film Curtains, and this has come up in our professional uh, lives as of late. But it's Curtains, and it's the redheaded hag mask worn by the killer in yep. this thing. I almost chose that one too. There's it's in the sequence is so iconic. It's this skate rink. Ice, ice ring sequence as she's chasing her on skates with this. This is like the stuff of nightmares. Um, there's just something about the wrinkly hag with a, almost like a scythe coming after you. So, yeah, 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 that that that's an interesting movie. I, I recommend people check it out. It's one of the Canadian slashers, which they were pretty good at making these films, too. So number three for me. Good choice. Number two, the night owl mask from Stage Fright. Ooh, nice. Uh, white barn owl looking mask, blood stained around the collar. Oh, just look it up. It's so obscure. I think that animal masking plays to a pagan element that's going to come up a couple times on this conversation that we'll have today for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's creepy. Stage Fright's a great movie. For those that haven't seen it, that's like an, an exceptionally bloody late 80s slasher movie. Ooh, the night owl. Yeah. And he's very, he's a very limber killer. So he's like moving fast and you got this like oversized owl head. He almost looks like a mascot for like a college team. If you took, yeah, exactly. (laughs) If you took, I think prom nights killer and the agility that that bad Mm. guy has. Mm. And like you said, add a college mascot feel to it. You'd have this excellent, terrible intentions though. Not comedic like college mascots Mm -hmm. are number two for me. My Bloody Valentine, the minor gas mask here. I kind of dig the whole look of the minor from My Bloody Valentine because, you know, you get the the gas tube, the eyes, you can't really see the face. And then his weapon of choice is a pickaxe. So a lot of these I, characters that stand out for me are they pick their weapons and their costume kind of goes together. It's kind of like a package deal. So this one really fits. And you want to talk about another very bloody we're going to talk about 1981. This was kind of the hey year for slasher films. My Bloody Valentine, this film, Halloween 2, Final Exam, Happy Birthday to Me, Graduation Day, mm-hmm. uh, a big. ton, a big year for this genre. Very profitable franchise quite suddenly. Number, Number one. one. I hope you'll give this one to me. Okay. It's a little bit of a stretch, and if we're going slasher horror, yeah. 
I think it's Christian from Eyes Without a Face. Oh, no, of course. Right? Yeah. It's actually human. Mm -hmm. It's just devoid of any noticeable cracks, flaws, or otherwise human traits. Mm -hmm. That movie's important. Whether you want to call that the birth of slasher horror or not, we can have that discussion. It plays a role in it. But essentially, this is the mask that this little girl and I do think little, like 13 to 14 years old maybe, has to wear because the face that her father has given her has keeps rotting off. Okay. So when her face rots off... Is that how old she is when she has the accent? I kind of think it's... it's She's young. Adolescent-ish, mm. preteen-ish. Anyway, she walks around with this... I don't even know what you would call it. Mime-like effect in the mask that doesn't break except for her eyes blinking behind the <clears> eye holes. It's completely devoid of emotion. And the hollowness of that creates a soulless like effect in this rather wiry creature and the whole look with her flowing gown mm-hmm. and white and that final shot in mm-hmm. the forest with those animal is <laughs> ghastly. So that was number one for me. That's good. Uh, the obvious inspiration for the Michael Myers mask, uh, an emotionless void that you can really paint any face on Yeah, on that mask. I love it. That, that's a great choice. I'll give it to you. Thank you. I think we pur- purposely kind of tried to leave off like Michael Myers and Leatherface, the, you know, iconic masks and kind of dig a little deeper for these ones. Right. So I dug pretty deep for this one. So this is from Terror Train, and it's actually... So the killer wears a variety of masks, even like a lizard head at at some point. But I am going with the most uh, just unsightly Groucho mask that this guy wears. So it's like a grotesque version of Groucho Marx, who's just prowling the train. Yeah, that gives me... It gives me the heebie-jeebies. And he's on the poster, and... The Terror Train's interesting. It's another Jamie Lee Curtis one. David Copperfield's in that movie. Hart Bachner from Die Hard's in it. And, you know, we, we, we talked about earlier about, you know, the outs that a lot of these uh, settings provide. I mean, talk about a train. Like, I mean, you're going to jump off a moving, speeding train? Probably not. Right. So I think that's a great setting to to house one of these movies. And, yeah, you put, put a mask like that, that's going to uh, definitely stand out. That's a friendly, common sight. We all laugh with Groucho. Sure, yeah. And appreciate the comedic element of duck soup and whatever version of him you like mm-hmm. with the Marx Brothers. And then to take that mm-hmm. and use it in that way. And the mask is a little bit off. Like it's a little sized a bit out of proportion but on the, purpose. And the nose is big. The nose, the glasses are a little bit bigger. That distortion makes it not quite 100% familiar. And again, that's the obfuscation of the familiar, which is a very common play that we talk about a lot, especially in horror. And man, they're working it great right there in that look. Excellent. Get online people and check these things out. They're good. Check check these films out. If you're looking for stuff to watch now in October and spooky season, and you haven't seen a lot of those eyes without a face for sure. um, Put some of these on, check them out. Terror train, uh, stage fright. Yeah. Stage fright's wild, I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. All right, excellent, Matt. I love your choice. Yours too. Cheers. So Cheers. are you ready to... Matt and I have job interviews at Packinac Lodge uh, <laughs> to be camp counselors. I think Matt's going to teach them basketball. I'll probably teach like the music side, teach them how to play piano. Hopefully we don't get fired. And hopefully there's not a psycho killer running around the woods this weekend. All right. <laughs> Let's get to it in our review breakdown of Friday the 13th Part 2. You want something to eat? 
So Friday the 13th part two opens up with a lowly, dimly lit suburban street, I'd imagine, as we're introduced for the first time to Jason Voorhees. And it's really just his legs as they splash into a puddle of water here. But what this opening sequence does is kind of set the events in motion of this film. But it has the Rocky effect that I think I mentioned on Rocky three or four how you always got like the pre-film, the prior film recap in the in the opening scene to kind of catch you up on what had uh, taken place. So here we go. We're with Adrian Keene as Alice again as she recounts through Nightmare her events of Friday the 13th Part 1 and her encounter with Mrs. Voorhees. And to say that she's bothered by it I, is an understatement, wouldn't you say, man? To say she, yes. So... I got to be honest with you, for an opening scene, and I think it has a, a pretty decent kill here coming up at the end, it, it's an opening scene, and maybe it's just because I've seen that first Friday so many times, and I'm not in 1981, and I don't need the recap, that this kind of goes on like a pretty long time, like six or seven minutes, so it kind of wears on me a little bit, this opening sequence. There's something to getting people caught up with the prior film. And I think they were doing it because of the there was no home video to yeah. really visit in between. You want to expand your footprint of possible viewers, no question about that. I'm just not sure if the minimal release and fanfare around this movie would be enough to incite someone to see the second iteration without previously seeing the first iteration. Mm-hmm. And so all that being said, whatever, they can make their choices on how they want to market the film. And I don't begrudge them that at all because it needs to make money so the franchise can keep going. Welcome to business, right? Yep. But yeah, it's it's about eight or nine minutes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a lot. There's a lot that they're doing that I don't think they need to do. If it's just a showdown between her and Mrs. Voorhees, where she does her in and cuts her head off. That's enough. Mm-hmm. That's enough. Yeah. Uh, we made a couple jokes that you know, maybe she was having such a terrible nightmare because she was in a green wool turtleneck with green corduroy overalls, and that might make anyone Looked uncomfortable. Incredibly uncomfortable. So that might have something to do with it. But yes, to back your up your point up completely, it's it's five minutes too long. Sure. And then Adrian King's here again, and I mentioned to you that, like, in real life, after the release of the first one, had, like, a real-life stalking uh, problem with someone actually breaking into her house. So she was she didn't want to, like, be fully involved with this film or this world anymore because of the real-life ramifications of it. So she did want to wrap up whatever they had in store for her character here in this little opening sequence. But what do you think... Because this is theoretically in the timeline. We'll be talking about this a lot. So 1980, or I think it's 1979 is when the first one takes place. This is supposed to be taking place, I think, a couple months after the end of the first film. Like, not like a couple years, but like rather soon. What do you think of the introduction of Jason Voorhees as the character? Because if we just kind of take a step back in the time machine... 
and we have the first film with Mrs. Voorhees and Jason comes out of the lake at the end. And that's a dream, obviously. And he was always kind of meant to have been dead already. But now you have a sequel machine being churned out here. They want to make a sequel. You decapitated your antagonist in the last film. What do you do in this one? Do they do enough to justify Jason as an antagonist in this for you? God, that's a big question. This is coming, I think, in a later discussion as we move through this cask. But I want to answer what you just gave me by saying the element of Jason that is different to me compared to Freddie or Michael is the pagan route that this takes in the second film. Mm. Um, you said it really well. The pyre that has mom's head in the back of his little lean-to. His Shantate. Yeah. Literally, oh, right? Oh, my God, <laughs> That's yeah. the epitome e of his Shantate. E e Shantate. Yeah, exactly. There is a resurrection element to that. Frankly, that has more mm. of what I wanted from Suspiria that Suspiria didn't give me with pentagrams and candles. and mm. Interesting. And I like that image in horror. We talked about that in Hereditary too. Mm -hmm. So I like that idea. Whatever power and then being set in the woods, I think you can harness Mother Nature and Genesis and Rebirth. There's a lot of, I think, themes that apply there. Jason as the antagonist is... I think the only way that this could go, unless you're going to take a counselor who has fallen sway to the myth and is monetizing it or some other element. Mm. Mm. But here's the thing. Yeah. As much as we're not going to get the fully fleshed out version of Jason yet, we're talking about hockey mask, hulking, brooding thing. I think what works, and I don't even know if I'm answering your question, Jesse. Sure. I think what works for me in this version of Jason is he's not quite developed. Mm -hmm. If he's a little kid in the dream, not little kid, but kid, and then to teen in the first one, he feels like he's about 18, 19, and he's not going to be the developed brute that we're going to see in three through 15 or however many it was, <laughs> three through 13, <laughs> how many you even got to. You're close. So- does it work? Yeah, I think so. And I also think what works for me is because he's not developed, his persona isn't developed. And that goes to the, like you said, sack face, mm -hmm. potato sack element also. Um, yes, I guess that's a really long answer saying for me, it does work. Does okay. it work for you? I don't know. Well, let go. Break it down. Well, originally, so Sean Cunningham and the powers that be that created the first one, if they wanted to make a sequel, but they kind of wanted to go the route that Halloween was trying to go to its season of the witch and do an anthology film called them all Friday the 13th, but it's all set around the superstition, the unlucky day. But the, you know, how the studios were, no, we want more of the same. We want the Jason character. And I don't know if in this film, particularly they do a good job of explaining the appearance of Jason. He's just been in the woods all this time. He watched his mom get killed that night like, I don't think they do a good enough job. I'm glad he's here because he's a formidable antagonist, but especially in this opening sequence, he just kind of shows up. And this is the other thing I want to know, too, because I don't think Alice lives in, because I think in the prior film, she I think she was going to California to go straighten some stuff out, mm -hmm. some family drama. Mm -hmm. I think she lives in California. And I don't know if Jason is intellectually superior to figure out where Alice would be 
to take her out. So it's a bit of a, a stretch for me. I do like the way Alice is disposed of with this ice pick, and it's pretty brutal. Ice pick to the temple, Jesus. Uh, and then puts puts the head in there to kind of remind her. And then he's so kind to take the steaming tea kettle off of the, the fire. That way it's not going off all night. But I don't know. I don't know if, if this introduction to him works for me or if his just explanation of why he's here necessarily works. The structure of geography is a huge failure. There's no way that that guy who is a feral reincarnated pagan element yeah. is going to be able to hop a plane or a bus and make it to wherever Alice is. With the problems that Alice had regarding mm -hmm. being stalked and not wanting to continue in the franchise and get out and be private and not yeah. be subject to the craziness of fandom. That's, that happens to a lot of horror actors, which is strange. Really? Heather Langenkamp. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Danielle Harris from Halloween. Like, it happens frequently with horror actors, which is weird. It is weird. Yeah. Maybe that isn't the beginning of the movie that we need because mm -hmm. we've just banged on the backstory through a dream. And look, it's all a dream is a terrible way to write. <laughs> yep. So maybe we should just start with the re-envisioning of Camp Crystal Lake with a new set of counselors renamed and reimagined for a group of kids that are still going to come and do summer camp. We don't need, I don't know if you need the Alice part. Is the complex, is the complexity of Friday the 13th so great <laughs> that you need to give people the backstory to understand what's going on? No, frankly, the concept is pretty simple. Boogeyman killing teens that are amorous in the forest. That's really not difficult to wrap your mind around. So all of this other stuff that you're giving and you've explained it plays okay. I mean, it's, it's interesting enough to watch, but... <sighs> It's a false lead into what I think would have played better in the end of the first film. Sure. You've brought up a couple really interesting things here that I'd like to talk about for just a second. Do you mind? Yeah, good. In Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Yes. The pagan element that I referenced in this is more akin to how I think Friday the 13th was shaped. Mm -hmm. And I'll also say the second Halloween and where we start is probably more likely on how this film should have started if you want to do an Alice. Sure, yeah. So in a weird way, they're working, but out of sequence and out of world. Mm. Sure. I mean, in a lot of these films were made in response to the next one, so you get Halloween 2 and this one in the exact same year. See, I didn't know what you what you just said about Friday the 13th and the studio executive saying we want to move into the the... the dark day or whatever you called it in the pagan element. Yeah. Did somebody leave that studio and go and work at Trancus and say, <laughs> I have an idea. We didn't get it off the ground for Halloween at Georgetown production company, which who the hell is, by the way, who is that company? I don't know. I, I think that Sean Cunningham's company, maybe. Uh, <sighs> yeah, that's strange. I don't know if you remember this, uh, but probably in the late eighties, uh, there was a Friday, the 13th television, television show. And, I it, do. and it was kind of, wasn't it like, it was kind of like The Conjuring. Wasn't it like an antique shop with like haunted things and they all kind of like told their story. So they kind of did go that element. Yeah. But by then, everyone, you just want Jason at that point. Right. He's he's such a name. But this is interesting. Like, and, and you know, when we talk about Nightmare on Elm Street, I mean, Freddy was just so captivating right from the get-go. 
and he, and Michael Myers and Laurie Strobe. But here you have like he's not even barely in the first one. He's kind of finding his footing in this one, and it's not until part three that he really gets going. So there's a lot of patience with this particular series, but for him to have such a longevity going forward that people just wanted more and more and more of him because of how iconic he had, he had become. And he's not even there yet in the second film. It's interesting that this is the discussion that we're having about this slasher horror leans on the critical side as very formulaic. That's mm -hmm. one of the barbs that's fired against it, right? It's so formulaic. I guess I would just pause for a minute and ask, is this movie in the context of general filmmaking really that formulaic? Because I'm going to give you one other thing too. Okay. If traditional filmmaking is the hero's quest as defined by Campbell with protagonist forced to take on something against all odds and the beats and reversals and all that, a traditional antagonist is the bad guy and not the featured character in that storytelling trope. Mm -hmm. Not here. Yeah. It doesn't matter so much that we didn't get Heather Langenkamp back for three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and that we didn't get Jamie Lee Curtis for three. It doesn't matter because the star of the film ends up being the protagonist. And that's not formulaic. You mean the antagonist? I'm sorry. Yeah, my bad. Yeah. That's not formulaic at all. Yeah, that's considerably different than most films. So much so that one of them, and again, we're talking about Friday the 13th, not the other two, but they all work together. Mm -hmm. If New Line, say get this this time, mm -hmm. is the house that Freddy there built, you go, there you go. not Miramax, yeah, there you go. then it's because the antagonist was the featured character. And what the big moments in the film were and are for all these is how are you going to kill the people? Yes. That is not traditional. And so if you're going to say these are formulaic, in a completely original way of telling a story that wasn't done. How many movies before this franchise came out that featured the bad guy? I can only think of, and this has to be the modern counterpart to its its genesis, mm -hmm. is the Universal Monsters. It has to be. That's the only thing I could come up with as well. Yeah. Godzilla, That's so God good. Godzilla? Yeah, but even with that, Godzilla ends up sort of siding with the forces of good to take down the bad and humanity True. befriends yeah, no, him. You're right. But- Yes, to a certain extent, yes. Mm -hmm. Right? I see a lot of parallels in the Universal Monsters with these characters. Well, even the big three, if you want to go down that road, Frankenstein's monster, Dracula, and the Wolfman. Same, the so, big three. So Dracula's Freddy. Yeah. Frankenstein's probably Jason. Jason, I would even, or Michael. And then, you know, Wolfman is probably either one of these guys, the, right. the mute monster. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. prior to that, you yeah, you would side, especially here in the 80s. I mean, think about blockbuster filmmaking. We have characters like Luke Skywalker and Indiana Jones, Superman, uh, Richard Donner. And then here we have this genre that's totally making you sympathize with the villain. Like, like you want, you're right. You want, you came to these movies to see how these kids would be done in. And it features two things. Really poor sexual advances among amorous teens. And I think that's done on purpose. Sure. Like we were laughing at some of the lines that these kids are casting on each other the night that <laughs> evil befalls all of them. Yeah. Like let's play video games and then, you know, show me how the puck works. Are you talking about hot? Like all that stuff's just silly, but works. Cause I think it makes them look completely incapable compared to 
what the other featured element of this is and clearly done because they're taking great directorial license and showcasing the murder or death or however they're getting stabbed or hacked. Mm -hmm. There's an artistry to that. Oh yeah. Which for again, a criticisms that's levied against slasher horror. Oh, they just are naked. It's just boobs and, and decapitations. There is an artistry in the way that that is done that acknowledges physics mm -hmm. and gravity and momentum and force yeah. and splatter, all of that is in play here. And it's delivered in grand fashion in the canvas that is the screen with plenty of red paint. Some folks claim they've even seen him. Good job. Right in this area. The girl who survived that night at Camp Blood, that Friday the 13th, she claimed she saw him. She disappeared two months later. Vanished. Blood was everywhere. No one knows what happened to her. Legend has it that Jason saw his mother beheaded that night. And he took his revenge. A revenge that he'll continue to seek if anyone ever enters his wilderness again. by now, I guess you all know, we're the first to return here. Five years, five long years he's been dormant. And he's hungry. Jason's out there. Watching. Always on the prowl for intruders. I don't know about you, but I really like that scene. Well, welcome to the opening of your film. Yeah. That's what that should be. And I like the pan in too, that like it like gets in real close as he's kind of telling the legend. So let's jump ahead five years. So those keeping chronological time, this is 1981. The opening scene is theoretically 1979. We're in 1984 now. <laughs> so everybody clear. We're going to Pakanak Lodge. It looks like it's a counselor um, kind of training ground. Looks like they're going to open up camp, but we got to go through like counselor boot camp first. Uh, and we're introduced to the rest of our characters. So we have Ginny, Paul. Uh, I again remember the rest of their names. So it's just you, you, you can pull you can pull them up for me. I'll look for them. But what Terry, you, yeah, Terry. Um, oh, San Sandra and Jeff. Ted. Yes, and Ted. He's the redhead. Yeah. Jokester. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But there are, I, th I find them very interesting. And honestly, compared to the last film, I mean, we had Kevin Bacon and Ned and, and Bing Crosby's son in that and Steve Christie. And all, they're all kind of one note and kind of lame. I kind of like these kids a little bit better. I mean, we made a lot of jokes about Russell Todd's character. I just know the actor's name. Mm -hmm. But... A good-looking guy mm -hmm. who's trying so hard to get the attention of this girl, like, because the the way to get a girl is that you got to slingshot her in the ass and you got to st uh, steal her clothes while she's skinny dipping, because um, that's really gonna get her uh, into you. But he, he's he's trying so hard, but I don't think it makes him unlikable. I mean, it, it makes him it makes him flawed. A less effective George Bailey. Sure, exactly. That's what they're going for with him. Mm -hmm. And. At least you're creating some 
internal character development between those two. The advances of this guy at this place where if you're breathing, there's probably a good chance you're hooking up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this guy can't, right? Yeah. And this guy can't lock down this girl who doesn't have a single pair of shorts that cover her rear end. Oh, I know. And does not own a bra and glory to her for that. Mm-hmm. Right. Whatever. Yeah. She's got an amazing figure and it's like she, it, it works completely. For yeah. Kristen Davis, that's her name, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Kristen Baker, sorry. Kristen Davis is different than Sex in the City. <laughs> Also different. Yeah. I think they're likable. I think they're they're kind of in tune with what they got, especially, you know, the guy in the wheelchair. I mean, he's... Not Franklin? Yeah, no, he's definitely not a Franklin. Likable. I mean, even the banter between him and, and, and uh, Lori Marie Taylor. Yeah, I, just, I just know the actors' names. It's so strange. These, uh, these characters are only necessary in development insofar as the amount of time they're going to survive. If you're the first one to go, you need slight, slight development. Mm-hmm. If you're number two, that needs to grow a little bit more. And the reason for that is the stakes have to go up. And the only way the stakes go up in a slasher horror film is A, make the killings more violent or unique, or B, make us care about the characters a little bit more. A, will take care of itself because you just run out of different ways to do it. So you have to come up with more creative endeavors to do these people in. Yeah. B is have us get to know those that are going to befall the blade or pickaxe or whatever it might be from the killer so that we care a little bit. Ah, so we get it. Here is these two and the advances via slingshot or close theft as she's skinny dipping. And we both gave her a nod because neither one of us would get in that freezing cold water. No way. And it's cold too, because did you notice later on the breath and the, um, it's cold. Yeah. So I'm giving her big, big mad props on that. Yeah. Cause that lake is freezing cold. It's probably like 40 degrees, maybe less. And back to the sound that you gave, mm-hmm. that's such a great opening, which is we start on that close in and then the guy, what the hell's the guy's name? Um, Paul. Paul. Yep. Comes around the corner, jangly, ah, scares everybody. And then we back out and- Oh no, Paul's the one giving the speech. And Ted. That's, yeah, Ted. Ted. Mm-hmm. We back out and we welcome back to- what used to be Camp Crystal Lake. Let's just address this, everybody. And it's all fiction. And let's move on. We're glad you're here. And then we skip that really fake beginning that has no purpose other than just get us caught up, which maybe is inspired by Rocky and was effective in Rocky. It might have been. But not so much here. What do you think of... What do you think of Ginny, our theoretical final girl, Amy Steele, in this one? And I like to compare her a lot to Alice in the last film, and I got to give this series props too because the typical final girls, whether that be Laurie Strode or Nancy Heather Langenkamp, in in those films, they're more virginal, they're more innocent. And in the Friday films, I mean, I think they're a little bit more flawed. Uh, like Alice with "I got to go store some stuff out," and she's got that weird relationship with Steve Christie. Like they may have had a thing, but it's weird. Here, Ginny and Paul are an item. So not necessarily, and she's late. Like I think that's key. She's late to the orientation, so she she is flawed. She's not this perfect person that's gonna do battle with with the antagonist. I, I think these uh, people are, are flawed. And then wait wait till we get to the third one. Uh, it just continues on on that train. Well, let me ask you a hard question, Jesse. Okay. If you were going to give Jenny's character in this film a title. What type? What what trait would you assign her? And then ask. And then can you answer if that is 
a good skill set to go against Jason? Like sassy or what, like, what would you say she is? I'm going to say she's. It's hard, isn't it? I'm going to say she's smart, but I, I, I almost want to give her, and this is no knock against, cause I know single mothers have it really, really tough and it's hard to raise kids, but she has the qualities of a single mother. Yeah. Uh, she is motherly because she is one of the head figures at this camp, kind of getting everyone in shape. But she is flawed in that regard. I mean, single mothers have to juggle taking care of their kids and working. And I think that kind of shows up in her being late and her being there. But she has the smarts at the end to really outwit the this intellectually deprived killer when she puts on the sweater. I think Ginny's a quick thinker on her feet, which is, I think, a quality. And amen to all the single mothers out there because that's a tough job. Um, I don't know if that's what they're going for, but that's kind of what I see in her character, which is interesting <laughs> i think we're on the same wavelength because i would have said hustle and when you've got 10 seconds and we'll get to this and we'll let the cat out of the bag too soon but when it's the final showdown between her and jason what she survives on is her wits or hustling in the moment making a quick decision successfully she navigates her way out of being late to camp one thing after another we see her sort of hustle her way out of street smarts hustle wits whatever you want to say and I wouldn't necessarily think that that is a good skill set against a more hulking, brooding monstrosity that seems omnipotent and eternal, mm -hmm. immortal. Yeah. But it plays. I mean, she does win, and I buy it mostly. We'll get to the ending here in a minute and sort of try to break that down, and I'm not even sure if I can. I don't even know myself. Okay. But, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Mm -hmm. And to the single mothers, finding a way to make it work in the immediacy of now, hustle, the hustle. Mm-hmm game having enough game she got enough and i wouldn't think that would play but it does do you think she's a more apt final girl than alice was in the prior film because i would say yes certainly yeah i would also say though she has to be because i think as much as i like the showdown between mrs Voorhees and alice in the first one mm. jason is far more formidable than mrs Voorhees. Sure. Is. oh yeah right that just looks like a cat fight mm-hmm now, again, not to be disrespectful, but Mrs. Voorhees is not some it, it terrifying did, force. It did, though. I mean, she was smashing her face in the sand. Yeah. Yeah. So it, Like it, mud wrestling or it, WWE. It kind of was like that. So, yeah, you do have to up the stakes, and you also have to up the body count. So yeah. also returning in this film is Crazy Ralph from the prior film, who gets garroted against a tree trunk, which that's pretty gruesome. I wish they had done a little bit more with his character, too. I'm going to let you run with that because I think the same thing. You're right. Go. I thought he was like a good kind of prophet of doom in the first one and and kind of showing up and, and warning the kids. I mean, they could have really played with that character to really ward people off from fraternizing in this area where all these evil things have happened. In this one, it just kind of looks as a tie from film one to film two, and then they get rid of him. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more. He's the historian of the film. And as the Ooh. new counselors come in, he runs the general store or some side merc, uh, you know, mercantile shop. I wish he wasn't so certifiable because he could actually be like the historian of Crystal Lake and like, oh, back in 1954, Mrs. Voorhees was the a pop Lebo of Crystal Lake. Yeah, that could be pretty good. And that's a miss to kill him up against a tree as he's <laughs> voyeuristically watching Jenny and what the hell's his name? Paul. Paul. Get down. That's kind of loaded too. <sighs> if there was a moral issue that this movie crossed and when you did X, that means you paid the price, sort of similar in a psycho fashion, like once you break these immortal sins, then you're going to meet your end. 
then I guess I get that. But if you're going to put him in the film to just choke him out, guillotine him against a tree, again, I think we have notif- like identified two huge misses in the beginning of the film. Bro. Look, Holt, people say what you're doing with these kids is great. you got a good reputation. But if I was you, I'd have located in the next county. You're too close. Things have been quiet for five years, and that's the way we want to keep it. So do I, officer. So do I. Okay, you two, take off, and I'll talk to you at dinner, all right? We'll never do it again, sir. Thanks, Mr. Holt. You're not even going to reprimand him? No punishment? What kind of place is this? Ginny? Yes, Paul? No seconds on dessert for Jeff and Sandra tonight? <laughs> uh, oh, gosh. Harkening back to the last film, though, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things we talked about in that episode was the lack of trust or buy-in from authority figures. I mean, there's uh, several cop figures and townies in the first film where they're like, yeah, don't mess around with that. And here this guy's kind of doing it to it. And so I think that plays into the formula that they've set up nicely, which is we're going to bring this character and he's going to warn you about, look, like you can do your business, but you can't be going around there. We kept it nice and quiet since then. We don't want you disrupting. So it, it plays into that. And that guy's about to meet a grisly death coming up here with a hammer to the back of the skull. Uh, but it's it's the lack of a reliable authority figure. And I'm talking about like a police element. Like this is our keystone cop for the film. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple things here for me. The importance of having the cops show up in the film and be completely useless is 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 maddening. I, I get you have to do it. Mm-hmm. It provides an element of hope and lets you see how worse how worthless the authorities are. I, I get it, but it's just such a lost lead waste of time because you know the cop is unless you're Dewey from Scream, <laughs> you're not going to survive. Sure. Why isn't this role played by Crazy Ralph? Yeah, it could have been. He warns them as they come into his general store. They don't listen. As he's following them out, he notices a movement in the trees. He follows it. It leads him to Jason Shantate. He discovers whatever's there. Boom, he's killed. Because the whole point of getting that cop involved is simply to introduce us to where Jason resides and whatever will be revealed in that room that he says, oh my God, before he gets a hammer in the back of the head. Mm -hmm. That needs to be crazy, Ralph. And then that character matters. And this is what's really interesting. You brought it up. Okay. At the end of the film, when the weapon that they're using to fend off Jason in the cabin has been very smartly already placed there in a previous encounter, yeah, that's a good setup. They have a setup right there in front of them. Mm. Crazy Ralph is your setup here. Use him. It seems like the cops are just for another body count, it seems like, right? And you can use that still with Crazy Ralph, but then you accomplish something inside the story that you've already created. <clears throat> you can forgive this movie and saying it's still pretty young in the slasher genre, but you know, slasher horror genre, but you know what it's not new in? General storytelling and continuity. Sure, yeah. It's been around forever. I think we've improved this film with those two elements. I mean, like, we're, we're turning this into something pretty decent. And I'm not saying I dislike this film. Me either. Uh, it's just that, like, these elements just kind of seem a little jumbled in the overall chess game of sorts. So maybe this is too early. But I think what we're both... Because I also do not hate this film mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. 
I think we're acknowledging it wasn't far away from being really, really good. Sure. Like simple little changes that could have made this film lights out, grand slam, bottom of the ninth, walk off, like lights out good. Sure. Close. So now we have the setup here for kind of the midpoint of the film, which is, okay, we start the real hard work tomorrow. So if anybody wants one more night out on the town, the nearby town, let's go have it, have a good time. Cool boss. Paul's kind of a cool boss. Yes, Even yeah. though he says no seconds on dessert, that's a cool boss answer. He's not going to like overly punish you for disobeying him. For walking, walking through the woods. Yeah, for walking over a fence. Whatever. Uh, so he's going to give them one night of leeway, but obviously the two derelicts, so Sandra and Jeff don't get to go. And then, um, yeah, Mark and Lori Marie Taylor have to start staying behind because she's so into him. Like, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, are uh, Kristen Baker and Russell Todd uh, are going to stay behind as well. So we're really setting up like, okay, like we're, we're taking half the cast away. So there's, there's no help and you guys kind of have to watch the camp. And that's when Jason strikes and boy, does he, does he really go for it? I mean, Russell Todd gets thrown up in a, a little booby trap noose, which I like, I like that about Jason. Jason to me, the woodsy forest camp killer would be the booby trap guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it's setting stuff up uh, almost Home Alone before Home Alone was even a thing. And here he kind of, you know, trips himself up into that and then just gets his throat slit. I mean, it's, it's, that's a pretty that's a pretty gruesome way for way to go for him. I want to ask you a question. The crew that decides to head off to the night on the town. And by the way, some of them go out to the night in town and we just never see again. Like there's the black guy. What happened? That guy just goes, and then he's gone. Half the cast lucks out because they just got... I just don't even show up in the film anymore. Well, they just got drunk and they just stayed at the bar. I mean... Found an after-hours party. Yeah. <laughs> the six that stay behind essentially become three couples. Okay, so those three couples are Sandra and whatever guy she's with. I can't remember his name. That is the worst kisser ever. Jeff, right? Hideous yeah. to watch that guy. Yeah. Ugh. Vicky and Mark... And then Scott and Terry, even though that one's not quite fulfilled, they pair themselves off into three little teams, for lack of a better way of putting it. Traditionally, if you want to scare someone in a horror film or just any in any attempt to scare someone, isolation would work better, I would argue, being by yourself because there's no help. Not to be too mystery incorporated, but part of that is Shaggy and Scoob and then the three capable Velma, Daphne, and Fred, right? So that's kind of a good frame of reference for this. Do you like that you have three little teams that he gets to attack, or do you want six individuals that he attacks, each in isolation as they're not connected? I kind of like the teams. I do too. And I think the film did a good job of setting up the three teams too. We understand why. So yeah, I, I buy it. So they kind of go- Even Vicky and Mark? Even Vicky and Mark. Okay. Uh, they kind of go off in, in pairs, and it's just one pair at a time. Uh, no, I think, I think that really works for me. And then the other pair that were kind of, that's at the bar, they're kind of figuring out, you know, the mystery of what Jason is. You'd be gone by now, right? Right. And you know, the only person I'd ever known was his mother. Never went to school, so he never had any friends. I mean, she was everything to him. Yeah, deranged killer. 
No, no, no. You're missing my whole point. I mean, I doubt Jason would have even known the meaning of death. Or at least until that horrible night. He must have seen the whole thing happen. He must have seen his mother get killed. And all just because she loved him. I mean, isn't that what her revenge was all about? Her sense of loss? Her rage at what she thought happened? Her love for him? Bizarre, isn't it? And he must be out there right now, crying for a return. For resurrection. Well, what do you think? I think you're drunk. <laughs> I'll drink that. Hit us again, sweetheart. Not me. You know, Paul, I'm really serious about this, though. You know, for a film like this, that's actually a pretty decent scene. And wait, wait till, it was not till the cat bag, but we got Halloween 2 coming up in a couple weeks. Laurie Strode is like comatose in a bed that entire movie and kind of doesn't wake up until the end for the final chase. This is much more better of a call to action by a final girl protagonist than I think we're going to get in this cask here. I'm so glad that you played that sound. Mm. Whether you think it's luck or whether the film is actually really good right here doesn't matter. I think the result's the same. The fact that Jenny's the one that's delivering the philosophy behind Jason Voorhees and the regret and neglect and loss juxtaposed with what we just discussed, the coupled and social element of the three couples back at Camp Pakanak. I'm starting to buy or believe that it's not luck, that the reason they're together is Jason recognizes his isolation, having his mother been decapitated versus the team element of the three couples that he's about to attack. And here you go. Now you have a reason why he's attacking them. Mm -hmm. He clearly misses his mother, hence the, pyre mm -hmm. effigy whatever the hell that is in his shantate yeah to remember her and this is the moment that i just thought of right now okay when he kills God, let me go back to the names here when he kills sandra and jeff jeff i think and i'm not trying to be a perverse here people i think he's still inside her and i think the blade penetrates both of them yeah at the same time the spear that's a metaphor on a lot of different levels. It's shocking and gruesome and horrific and what a terrible way to die. But it's also him staking his claim as the same way Jeff is staking his claim. It's jealousy. Now you really met Matt. That's, no, way, no that's way. way too smart. I, are you sure? Because Jenny's the one who delivers it. I don't think it's too smart. I think we're trying to explore some interesting ground here. Go. God, I think so. And I think in this genre, I think you can actually go that extra mile because of all these antagonists, Michael, Freddie, and Jason all represent some perversion of sex. Yes. Uh, and they're just so stunted in their adolescent growth. I mean, Jason essentially, I think, has the brain of like a 10-year-old, maybe five. Uh, so yeah, this is like a sexual act for him. It, it really is. I don't think it's a stretch at all. Let me back up your point one more way. Okay. If Jason, Michael, and Freddie are all a bastardization of some element of sexuality, then let's go to the end of the film when Jason is hearing his mother speak to him and she asks him 
to get on her knees <laughs> before her. Yep. You cannot tell me that there's not a river of incest and awkwardness it's in that. It's very psycho. It's very Norman and Norma Bates. So, <sighs> yeah. When it goes south with mom and son, and there is that perverse element of sexuality in there, it's hard to watch because that's not something I hope we're familiar with. Oh, and if yeah. you are, I don't want to know about it. Mm-hmm. That's to anybody out there. But secondly, it's horrifying to think about. Yeah. And I mean that at a base level. That is a horrible thought. Mm-hmm. Hence the genre we're talking about, horror, you are building ethos, pathos, and action with Jason Voorhees. And here it is, Jesse, the most developed character in the series and who the series is about. I wonder if we'll have a lot of ethos and pathos by the time we get to Takes Manhattan. That yeah. might be a different conversation we have. But here, they're on to something. They're, they're working with something. I think it's the antagonist that they set up in here and the the protagonist, uh, Ginny, here delivering that. But one of the reasons we're here, we're here for some kills. So we've already set up another ones. But here just might be the crowning achievement of the film. This film has the balls to kill off the guy in the wheelchair in the most gruesome way. Like a a machete to the face would have been enough. And he just kind of stays there on the porch. He rolls all the way down the hill, down the stairs. Like, yikes. Shot very artistically and significant attention put into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like a nice kind of pull in on both from behind and then from the front. So you're kind of watching. Like, I don't know which which direction this is going to come from, but I'm like unprepared. And then as it kind of comes in and kudos to the filmmakers for being willing to, to go there. I mean, that's kind of taboo, like people with disabilities and that's kind of, you don't kind of go there, uh, Todd Browning and freaks, but, uh, Sergio Leone killing yeah, the boy in once upon a time in the West. Yeah. There's certain things you don't do. And this is one of them, but everyone remembers that kill from this film. Uh, that's the one that sticks out to me specifically. So and, and likable. He was a likable guy, too. He yeah. was definitely not a Franklin. No, definitely not a Franklin. <laughs> we're, we're just waiting for him to go. So then we get that, and then we get the double bed um, implant, uh, inspired by Mario Bava's uh, Twitch of the death, death Nerve, I think also called Bay of Blood, if I'm not mistaken, uh, where there's a, a double impalement in, in that film as well. Great, great kill. And then we get one more here um, as she comes and finds those bodies. And when you think about it, Sandra. this is the first close-up we get of Jason in the mask. Mm-hmm. Sandra? I just want to kind of instill the fear of that sequence for the character. So here you are, you go upstairs, you think you're going to, you're just, what are they doing in there? Are they doing something naughty in there? And you pull the covers and it's this guy in a potato sack who stabs you in the thigh. You back up into your friend Jeff, who's 
strangled with the bed sheet. And then this guy rises out of the, and you're like, who is this? You have no time to react. He barrels down on you. And I, you, I always remember he like smashed his thumb in the door. Cause he has that like bruise in there. And I would tell you that I did that before a, a band concert. Ooh. I smashed my finger in a door. And when you, you kind of need your fingers when you play saxophone. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, that always sticks out to me too. Like what a crazy, that had to have been just a stun accident and his thumb looked like that. But that shot of the knife going towards her, there's no getting out of that. You're paralyzed with fear at that point. What a nightmare. <laughs> what a nightmare. Harkens back to the opening of Halloween. Mm -hmm. First person POV. It's not through the mask, but it's close enough. And you watch him estimate the distance and the time it's going to take to do her in and prey upon her helplessness. And you can argue, well, she should run away. She's already been hacked in the leg. I don't know how mobile she is. And she's pinned in the corner. Where's she going to go? Yeah, the, the door locks behind her. Yeah, and yeah, to her left, she's there's nowhere to go. Yep. I think that's a really nice shot scene. Again, mm -hmm. artistically done, first-person POV, in great expertise and a thoughtful, artistic way to deliver it. I think that's something that's helped out this series just in totality. I mean, Steve Miner does part two and three, and then H2O, and I literally know nothing else that guy's done. And then when you get to part four, you get Joseph Zito, who's known for the missing in action Chuck Norris movies of the 80s. Yeah. And he knocks that movie out of the park. Like that movie has such a tone of seriousness and it's so gruesome in its kills. I can't wait till we to talk about that one. But uh, yeah, I think yeah, it's, they're, 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 it's well shot here. And, and we're talking about, well, this is just a series that ripped off Halloween. Yes, but this might be doing a sequel better than what Halloween was ever able to do and trying to figure out. Yeah. This is people that were invested in progressing the series, whereas Halloween was, we'll talk about it, but Carpenter and the powers that be other than Mustafa Kod did. They did not want to be involved with sequels. They were trying to end that thing quicker than it began. So kudos to them. This is an effective scene. Day of the dead is his. In 08, and Soul, a Soul Man, 86, C. Thomas Oh, Howell. my God. <laughs> Interesting, huh? Uh, Forever Young, I think that's Sean Young, if I'm not mistaken. With Mel Gibson? Yeah, the Mel Gibson one? Yeah. yeah. Um, de a decent filmography, but yeah, it's, it's, Interesting. it's odd. It's genre expansive, shall we say. Sure. So then we get uh, Ginny and Paul return to Pakanak Lodge, and they're like, what the hell's going on here? All the lights are on, everyone's missing. And then it just turns into just a shit show. So Paul's disposed of, maybe killed in that scene. Let's kind of see where we come in on our prognosis of the ending. But then I think, to me, what kills the first Friday the 13th for me is once Mrs. Voorhees shows up and she's after Al. I mean, it's this like 15-minute chase through building after building and kill her, mommy, kill her. And mm -hmm. it just goes on and on. And here it, it kind of does the same thing. It kind of goes on and on. But I think these scenes are altogether more interesting. When she's uh, trying to barricade the door and reach for the window and he smashes through that. Or when he gets her in the car. Or in the very interesting scene where she's hiding under the bed. The rat scurries in. She pees. And we see the trail of urine. So then Jason gets up on a chair ready to stake her as she gets out. 
falls, busts his weapon, and then she pulls out the chainsaw and, like, chainsaws, like, his arm and, like, smashes a chair over his head. Like, I think these scenes are just more interesting than they ever were in the first movie. And you just mentioned the part that's going to play out later. Mm. Maybe. <laughs> the weapon that he is, which is a pitchfork, mm-hmm. that shatters as he topples off the chair and crashes into the ground and the weapon explodes. <laughs> That's a good setup, and they're going to use it later, kind of, maybe. But it's there is a reason why it's there. I can't tell you why the chainsaw's in that room. That maybe doesn't work. I don't normally keep a chainsaw in my room, but I don't live in the woods. Nonetheless. I think that was just kind of like the storage shack. Okay. Sure. The Tin. love shack. <laughs> Tin roof. Rusted. Rusted. <laughs> um, gosh. That's bad. <laughs> good setup. And they're acknowledging some sequential thinking and continuity and story. It's just so uneven in this film. I think this is a great example of how it can be done and how we can miss with Crazy Ralph. Sure. Uh, I want to shout out uh, on our Instagram this week, Parallel Fiction. They just started a new podcast. Go check them out. Um, it's always good to shout out the other podcasts. It's a nice collective community, as we've discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, but they asked us, hey, have you guys tried the video game to the Friday the 13th? And I said yes, and what's crazy about this Pakanak Lodge, so it's just a multiplayer game. There's like not like a single player. You play online, uh, and the Pakanak Lodge is exquisite. Like they watched this film to the detail. Like the interiors, the outside, they made it look like how this area looks like. And when you play as this Jason, I think you're you're um, you have the the pickaxe is your weapon of choice. But as we're about to get into this ending. Each map has a Jason shack, and you can actually kill the Jason in there by doing what Ginny does. So you have to break into the shack, you steal the sweater, and then if you encounter him, you put him in a trance. And then if you have the Tommy Jarvis character, he can hack him to death. Like you can actually, and it's hard, it's so hard to do. Interesting. I think I've been killed as Jason before, and it was so embarrassing. The guys on the mics were like, oh God, like, what, what, what a little bitch, and like this and that, just like, and I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> But I think set up nicely. I mean, we've set up this psycho, psychological background with Ginny. She's studying child psychology. She's already kind of getting into the mind of what someone with this mindset, how he would be in the woods after witnessing his mom's death. So once we're in the shack and she's got to think quick, she's like, oh, God, like, what do I do? She throws on this sweater and instantly goes into a Freudian uh, mesmeration, uh, mesmerizing trance and gets him. And like, like in Jason's little five-year-old brain, he really thinks this is mother. Like, I think this is a great way to like out, outwit the killer. I don't know if mesmeration is a word, but it, that's, a, that's a perfect explanation. <laughs> of, no, I love it. That's exactly right. The process of watching him be put under over the longing for his mother. Mm-hmm. And that's really well done. And it goes back to what we were saying in the bar scene with Jenny and who has someone to pair themselves off with that's appropriate and all of those things we just talked about. It's really well done, and it's also highlighting what we talked about with Jenny, her ability to think on her feet, that hustle, that quick-witted nature is serving her quite well. We've watched a lot of people in this film barricade themselves in rooms, and we've even watched Jenny try to do that, and it didn't succeed. Mm -hmm. So that's not the answer to surviving Jason, and so she might as well try this, and it's a pretty brilliant concept. You have to outsmart the killer in these films. Which, if you think about it, Jesse, of all of them, Jason's clearly the dumbest out of all three of them. Mm -hmm. Michael, Freddie, Jason. Jason's a rock. Dumbass, I mean. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, why not take that disadvantage and use it against him? Mm -hmm. Like each one of them have a disadvantage too, if you think about it. Um, And here it is. She's using her intellectual capabilities to undo him. What's Freddy's disadvantage? You just turn your back on him? Wake up, (laughs) an alarm clock. (laughs) That's no knock against Freddy. I love those movies. Uh, No knock. But uh, no, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Okay, so let's get to it. So at this moment is when the film goes cuckoo bananas. So... She outsmarts him. Paul busts in to kind of to to save, and they get in a little wrestling match. And then Ginny, not even, we can't lop his head off this time because we already saw that. But probably almost as gruesome between the shoulder blade and the chest cavity, right through his clavicle. Yeah, huh? sticks the machine. Oh God. Yep. And that like does him in. So then, because we got to bring parallels to the last movie, we the Paul and Ginny go back to the the little shack. And there's some rustling at the door and we're like, oh God, what is that? Set up nicely. I had never picked up on that before actually, which is they're using both parts of the broken pitchfork Mm -hmm. as their weapon of choice as it's Muffin who's been knocking at the door who they let in only to be disrupted by Jason bursting through the window, which I think is a pretty decent jump scare and like kudos to the stuntman for just being willing to jump through like that. When she wakes up, she's being loaded into an ambulance and going, Paul, Paul, where's Paul? And you and I are instantly confused as to what just happened in less than minutes. The first one ends in a dream sequence in the canoe on the lake or boat, whatever whatever that is. Is it a canoe? I think mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. And that might be the scariest moment in the film. Yeah, it's a good, good moment. So it's fair, based on the original and this being a sequel, that this is ending in a dream sequence too. The movie even starts with the dream sequence. If that last three minutes is all her escaping, how did she get out of there without Paul? Yeah. Because that's not a dream. Yeah. And we clearly see them arm in arm laboringly walking off under the weight of the effects of this battle Mm -hmm. to safety, right? Yep. So when do we stop what's real time and move to a dream state. And I got to just say this. Yeah. If the movie ends in a dream state, that's pretty cheap. Yeah. Like you can't say it was all a dream. That's a cheap way, unless it's inception or the first version of this. Yeah. So I don't even know <sighs> if I have an answer for you. Cause honestly, there's a part of me that thinks Paul died in the Pakenak lodge when she's like, there's someone in this fucking room. And then like, I think he dies there. That's what I think too. And but then because that's I, what I think too. Yeah, because I know the shack is canon. Because as I told you, part three opens with Jason getting off the floor of the shack and continuing on on his journey. So that happens. And Muffin is already spotted in the woods. Deep, what it? Yeah, gutted. Yeah, that was disgusting. Yeah, so, so this is Dream Muffin. <sighs> Real quick, what did you think? Do you remember that transition of when Muffin walked up to Jason? And then they transition to the hot dogs on the grill. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> I love great transitions in movies. I love in 2001 when they throw the bone up and then it's the ship. Oh, yeah. This might be better. Chill. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. No, yeah, it works. I, I'm with you, though, Matt. This is very... And then the movie just ends. And then it's a close-up on the head, which the eyes were supposed to open up, and I'm glad they cut that out because that's pretty stupid uh, on the Voorhees head. Did so, you notice, though, even in this version, if you look closely at the eyelids, there is a little quiver. Oh, yeah. Did you pick up on that? Mm-hmm. I think that works, actually. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, I don't know where I fall in on the sending. Cause I didn't know that. Is that right? So the original version had the eyes open? Yeah, there was an actress in there. Yeah. Would you have liked that? I don't know. For where I'm going with Jason and my take on him is that that pagan reincarnation, witchcrafty nature. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Um, the hint of the twitch in the eyelid was enough for me to tease that out. Um, did that? Did the opening eyes ever make it to? I don't think it's screening. I don't think it's ever. And there's no deleted alternative ending to that. This is a film that was notoriously gutted by the MPA. This entire series was just a victim to the ratings board. So all the death scenes were infamous, infamously cut down until this this recent box set that came out last week. Uh, hmm put in as a as a dvd extra uh the cut footage from this film which has been lost for like 40 years they finally found it on like a vhs master that's awesome from the makeup guy so these scenes were longer and more prolonged you actually see the the this the the penetration on the spear of jeff jeff and sandra but like yeah when you submit this film this series to their they're just like you got to trim that you got to trim that you're showing too much of that and then you're kind of left with these they're not stale kills, but like for a series that's known for the gore and the guts, I mean, it got, it, they were they. This series was treated definitely the worst. So well, let's go, let's finish up this train of thought here. Okay. Your final take: the return of Muffin and Jason jumping through the window to grab uh, Jenny. Thank you. Dream or real? Dream. I'm with you. Okay. So does she then get back to the storage room and pass out from the stress of the evening and the paramedics find her the next day? How do we get there? Yeah, I think that's what we're led to assume. We're just <laughs> never shown that, which is a problem. That's a big assumption, especially because she was wounded. Huge assumption. Yeah. Because the truth is, the way she hacks Jason with that machete Short of bleeding out or maybe having your jugular severed, that's very painful, but I don't think that would do you in, and especially not someone like Jason. He's essentially immortal, right? Yeah. I don't know if they've come to that yet in the film. The franchise is going to move to that, but maybe they haven't reconciled. We're never going to kill him. He's immortal. But I think it's been teased. He did drown. Yeah. He right yeah, so I I don't know I'm really I just don't think we've gone supernatural with this series just yet I mean it's oh, it's, I, good. it's gonna get there oh yeah but I think it's still kind of set in reality so I don't know it's there's a lot of questions left I and and then ultimately unanswered because when part three picks up we're just kind of continuing on with this I told you it's the two three and four are like one week of massacre that's awesome why don't you explain the dates on that. So if we're in 1984 now, this is Friday the 13th. Let's just say June, Friday the 13th. So two days later is part three. And then after one night of that, the f- two following days are part four. So this takes place over the course of five to six days, uh, two, three, and four. It's just like a bloodbath. It's a hell of a weekend. <laughs> a hell of a weekend for Jason. We're never going to Mexico with Jason, Jesse. Never, never, never. So someone who likes ambiguity in their endings... Give it to me straight. Oh no, nah, this don't it, it don't work for me. It's okay. just it's too much ambiguity. Okay, I, I like a little bit of 
I think there's just a, a missing scene, and it's the scene of Ginny walking alone back to the shack and slumps on the couch, passed out. If we had that, I think we would have less of a problem with this scene. But Were the, they victim of people saying we really liked your ending with Jason coming out of the lake and pulling Alice in there, so do it again? Definitely. I think so, too. Mm-hmm. All right. A couple things. Uh, Stan Winston was supposed to do the gore effects for this film and got pulled onto another project. That could have been pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't really, other than like Pumpkinhead, didn't really like have like a big hand in horror other than like Aliens. But I'm not going to really call that. It's like more sci-fi action. Uh, $1.25 million budget, $21.7 million gross. So yeah, I'd say you want Yeah. The reason they kept making a lot of these movies was because they were cheap to make and this is a decent gross on your profits. So it, it justified. Yeah. Go 20 make, to one. Go make another one. Yeah. yeah. The, the next year, go get it going right now. <laughs> Which was that? that, that Which was they the, did. They're so quick in, in turning these things around. So, a couple questions for you, Matt. Uh, what's your favorite tasting note? Um, and in this instance, and, and since we're playing in the slasher field, let's mix this up a bit. So instead of picking our all-around favorite scene, let's pick our favorite kills from this. When I say tasting notes, so what are you going to pick? Is it Mark in the wheelchair? It's, well, yeah, that's so on the nose to say that, but yes. Maybe it's on the nose because it's just that right. The Jeff and Sandra uh, in the bed double implement uh, penetration. Oh my God. That's that. Yeah, that's that's that. That's that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just wish it hadn't been gutted by the ratings board because that could have been pretty cool. But I'm going to go with you on it's the Mark death. And then the the oh my God for me is probably the ending. It's it's something that's always just like perplexed me in its inability to really give you a definitive answer is the mark death similar to the shower scene in psycho to you the helpless nature of it sure it has that element vulnerable i think that's why it works oh, yeah i think yeah, he doesn't really it's because it's a sneak attack too he doesn't have ability to fight back i mean as marion crane would throw a bar of soap at norman bates and how completely ineffective that would be mm-hmm. i think mark's limited by the same thing he's slower if he's going to move, his arms are going to be occupied. Mm-hmm. It's curtains, man. He's sure. got no shot. Who's the master distiller on Friday the 13th part two? This is a tough one, man. Um, I think I'm going to give you don't mind me going first. I'm going to give it to Amy Steele as, as Ginny. I think this is such an improvement from Adrian King. And I like Adrian King as Alice. But she, she this girl... This character takes the final girl and kind of ups it even more. She's smarter. She's more resourceful. She's more active. Uh, what was the word you used earlier? Hustle. Yeah. The hustle that's uh, available there is, and then the ending, the ability to just, I'm going to just, the only way to beat this guy, I got to just outwit him. And this is what I'm going to whip out. It's honestly, Ginny, uh, Amy still is Ginny. One of the top final girls, not only in this entire franchise, but in all of uh, the slasher filmdom. So I'm going to go with her. I'm going to go with Minor, I think. The directorial license that he used to showcase the highlights of the film, that being the the kills, are great. Um, it's close. Ginny is a very, very solid final girl. Mm-hmm. And... I think also a, a different or a departure from what we've seen with some of the other ones up to this point, a lot more active, a lot more aggressive and frankly, a lot more capable, but you already used that one. So I'm going to go with the director. I think this movie works. If what works for you is anything, it's the artistry of the kills. 
So let's rate this thing. We have rock gut, well, call, single barrel, and top shelf. Now, I want your rating, but before you say that, do you think this second entry, now leave the canoe bit and the legacy of what the first film set up, do you think this film is a step up from that one? Because I would argue yes. Yeah, I would make the same argument. I think the kills are better. I think the characters are more interesting. I think the antagonist is more formidable. The final girl is better. Yeah. I mean, just because you're first doesn't mean you're always going to be the best. In the case of Halloween, you're you're right in that regard. But in this series, we're going to take a roller coaster ride on what's good and what's bad. And I think this is better than the first one. No argument. If you take the ending scene out of Friday 1 off that film, I think you have a much different version. But that's not a vote of confidence either. I, I don't even remember what I gave that film as a rating. <laughs> it's probably somewhere between call and single barrel. Um this is a better movie for me. Again, first for me means a lot. That's the creative element being acknowledged. This is Call. Uh, it's not far from being Call Plus to yeah. maybe Top Shelf. And I mean that. If, if this, they could it, iron out a couple of those things that we identified and get the continuity mm -hmm. smoothed out. Yeah. This movie's not far from being really well done, but it's not well done. It's what it is. It's not sure. horrifying. It's crazy. This movie is absolutely killed on any rating sites. Like we're talking less than 30% on yeah. IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes and all that. Most of these films are. Yeah. Not fair. Yeah. Again, too yeah. much boxing in the Rocky franchise. Go to hell. Yeah. Too much. Oh. What are yeah. you? are yeah. stupid. Exactly. Stop it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Call. You? Call plus. I yeah. think this is one of the stronger entries in this entire franchise. Uh, you're right. If they smooth out the Ralph, the ending, mm -hmm. uh, just some of those elements, I, I don't even go as high as yeah, single barrel. Like this is a pretty solid, not my favorite in the series, but uh, I think it's a step up on part one. And yeah, there's some, there's some stuff to, to like here. And it's interesting because the, the Jason's not even fully formed yet. I mean, we, when I say Jason, you think hockey mask. Mm -hmm. we, we're not even there yet. Like we're still kind of, they're the filmmakers in the studio. They're figuring out what they want to do with this character. Mm -hmm. And it's not until they get those elements when they realize, oh, wow, we really tapped into something really unique here. So let me ask you, what's your favorite one? Is it four? Part four, the final chapter. Yeah, I think that one's mine too. Mm -hmm. It's just, I, we'll, we'll save the conversation for it. It's just. We're going to do three in year three and four in year four? Yeah. Of all these? Stop we, at five for all of them? No, we're going to. We're going to keep going as far as far as Rice Smile Films goes. Past the Dream Master? Oh, no. Because when you think about it, and then here's the interesting thing, because when we when we get to part three, the, the series on who has the best part three differs. Oh, yeah. Arguably, Nightmare Part 3 is going to be the best of all of them. Yeah. And then when we get to part four, it might be Friday's turn, turn to shine. Mm -hmm. And it, it this all the series take a roller coaster. But so like, is Halloween the winner at one? Oh, of course. I'm curious who I'm curious who the winner at two is then. Is it Nightmare? It, no way. It's this one, isn't it? It might be this. Well, we, we got we to gotta watch Halloween 2 again. We, we got to see where we go. So yeah. it's just interesting to see the trajectory of these. They're legends, all, all these guys. Michael, Jason, Freddy. And it's going to be fun to just talk about all of them and their journeys. And yeah. then the, 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 the many missteps along the way. So let's wrap this thing up with a nightcap.
this nightcap is a blast, everybody. So Friday the 13th is very much a film of the 80s. It looks the 80s, the fashion's the 80s, the music's Dr. Hook at the bars in the 80s. Uh, all, of, all of it is just very much of its time. But my question to you, Matt, is if you could take any horror film from the horror film spectrum and place it in a different time period, what would that film be and what would the time period be? It might be because Suspiria is still resonating in some level with me, but I'm very interested in the pagan bit right now. Um, I had an interesting conversation this week with one of my kids in class mm-hmm. that is interested in that. And we had a, a pretty in-depth breakdown nice. on Suspiria, me and her. Oh, sweet. Um, I'll be curious to, to see what she says when she listens to that episode. But nonetheless, nice. it's <clears throat> been, I've been thinking about it. Okay. So that being said, I think this might shape where I'm moving. Okay, I want the Wicker Man, but I want the Wicker Man set in Italy at the height of the bubonic plague. Nice. I think the masked element that they wore at that time, which were essentially... You're talking about like the Plague Doctor masks? Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. Beak-like masks filled with posies, ring around the pocket full of posies. Mm-hmm. That's from that. Yep. Because they thought that was a filtration system from the germs that they might be breathing that would then cause the onset of the plague. That alone in itself is immensely terrifying. Take that and set a sacrificial element to rid themselves of this plague that has manifest itself in their society and the unwitting cop that walks into it from another place, another time. I want that movie. Mm -hmm. Full period, full in the middle of it. It's going to be dark. It's going to be grim. There's going to be lots of decapitate, not decapitations. um, Guillotines? No, what I'm trying to say, like breakdown of the body. Um, body dysmorphia? Well, yeah. Mutilation? Rotting. Oh, yeah. Like literally walking and rotting corpses. Bring out your dead. Yeah. <laughs> and this guy comes in and through some nondescript crime, a murder or what have you, and becomes what a group chooses to offer up to the powers that be to rid themselves of. That's the movie I want. That's awesome. Thank you. Ooh, that'd be good. Wouldn't that be good? Expensive I, to make, though. Oh, yeah. Any period piece. Remember Ghost Story? Just going back to the 1920s yeah. escalated that budget in, immensely. Yeah. I have two, and I did two because I thought you were going to take this one. I want to mention both because I both want to see both of these movies. So I'll give you, yeah, so Nightmare on Elm Street, but set in 1692, so the time of the Salem Witch Trials. So good. Do you remember that character in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? He's like like the kind of guy in his like carriage, and he's like taking children. Mm-hmm. So I want something like that, Jeez. but set around like the time of witches and religion, Ooh. and it's like the Crucible meets like Freddy Krueger. Ah, uh, said during that time, I think that could be a lot of fun to kind of play around with that. Uh, did you Did you ever see The Witch? Robert Eggers, we The Witch. We talked about that so much. I have to tell you, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Um, I think it's pretty good, but like I want something of that tone, but with Freddy. That could be fun. Terrific. And because I thought you were going to take Nightmare on Elm Street, I also had a backup one, and I want American Werewolf in London in 1888, the time of like Jack the Ripper. So like cobblestone, London streets, but I want it to be funny. The thing with the Wolfman is the Wolfman is just so super serious, the Benicio, the Lon Chaney, it's like such a serious movie th- through and throughout. 
And American Werewolf is so good because of the comedy element. Like I want that movie to be funny and gruesome at the same time. Mm-hmm. So those are the two. I, so I want I want a backpack, two backpacking traveling guys in 1888 London who get tangled up with uh, some werewolves. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. And instead of the porno theater at the end, they're watching like some burlesque show mm-hmm. where he transforms in the theater. That's awesome. Yeah. I want to see that too. Mm-hmm. I want to see all three of those. Mm-hmm. Um, have you checked out any of that Nosferatu on AMC? Mm-mm. I think that first entry that you gave has some tones that resonate in that. Interesting. I'm going to check it out. Sure. Yeah. Uh, excellent. I love your choices. This has been a fun, very thorough discussion on Friday the 13th part two, really digging in deep on, a, on a film that maybe doesn't deserve it, but why not? It's that's, what's fun about the podcast. So yeah, we'll be continuing on the slasher train here with part two and we're doing it exactly how we did it last year. Friday was first last time up next Friday, uh, nightmare on Elm street, part two, Freddy's revenge. A couple of weeks ago, I can't remember what episode it was on, but we had a real, we talked about it briefly. And the big problem with that film is when they bring Freddy out of the dream into the real world and he's just kind of out and about at this pool party. Uh, so there, there's a lot of interesting things to talk about the characterization, the direction, the writing, and Wes Craven is out of this film. Like this is something made by the vices of New Line, make a sequel as soon as possible the following year. And we'll determine if they succeed or fail in that regard. So when's the last time you seen part of uh, Freddy's Revenge? Maybe the theater, the first time it came out. Really? Okay. Oh, forever. Yeah, this is like, I think this is 1985. Yeah. God, that's a long time ago. Long time ago. 35 years ago? Yeah, so we'll, we'll check that out. I recently watched it about three months ago. So. <laughs> I'm curious. No, no, not three months ago. Play. It was about a month ago, actually. I'm curious to see how this plays. Yeah, it'll be it'll be a fun discussion for sure. Yep. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers. We got to get going. We uh, were fired from our job interview at Pakanak Lodge, so we got to go find something else. Maybe we can get a job teaching at Springwood High this time. I'm going to have to get my clothes, though, before I do that. Hey, Jesse, give me my clothes back. <laughs> I got a green and red sweater for you. Ooh, I'll have to wear that proudly. Excellent, everybody. We'll see you next week. Everybody have a good week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Friday the 13th, Part 2 is property of Paramount Pictures and Georgetown Productions, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time. Jason, mother is talking to you! Jason, mother is talking to you. That's my